Hello, and welcome to the Indie Author Method Podcast, where we talk with independent authors about their process and how they can help you along your writing journey. I am your host, best-selling and award-winning author, Andrew J. Brandt. Before we get into it, this episode of the Indie Author Method is brought to you by The Subtle Nerd. The Subtle Nerd was born from fashion-forward comfort needs with a fun, sneaky twist on the geek and nerd culture. I have quite a few t-shirts from The Subtle Nerd, and my favorite is honestly the Three Broomsticks t-shirt. See, whether I'm in gym shorts and taking a jog around my neighborhood, or I pair it with a pair of jeans and sneakers and hit up one of my favorite breweries, this shirt looks great on me. It fits comfortably, it feels great, plus it's got that little hint of subtle nerddom, and I love it. So whether you get the Three Broomsticks shirt, or even the official mixtape for the End of the World t-shirt that I collabed with the Subtle Nerd on, check them out, check out their apparel, and get 10% off your order by using promo code INDIE at thesubtlenerd.com. This episode is also brought to you by Expand Shoelaces. A shoe's performance is literally held together by its laces. Expand creator Chuck Harris believed they could be better. It all began in 2015 when Chuck had the misfortune of contracting West Nile virus. One of the symptoms he experienced was the swelling of his feet throughout the day. It got so bad for him that the simple task of tying his shoes became painful. And with that, an idea was born. Chuck asked, what if your shoes could remain comfortable and snug whatever the conditions? Removing hot spots and pressure point aggravation while remaining a perfect fit every time. With that as his starting point, he devised a system to secure shoelaces using two elastic laces that allowed for a breathable, comfortably snug fit that regular shoelaces just wouldn't allow. Add to that innovation anchor mechanism, which helped to secure the laces in place, removing the need to tie them ever again. I use Expand laces on my Thursday Boot Company sneakers, and they make my shoes comfortable and easy to wear. Think outside the shoebox and get 10% off your next shoelace order with promo code INDIE at expandlaces.com. That's the letter X, expandlaces, promo code INDIE. Now, let's get on to the interview. Today, I have author Andrew Van Way, who writes speculative and suspense fiction. He holds a, a BA in screenwriting, an MFA in creative writing, and his travel narrative keyboard dreams about the 2013 League of Legends tournament in South Korea won him a Lowell Thomas Award. Andrew does a lot of things right as an indie author, and we'll get into the tips he has for authors starting out. Andrew, how are you? I'm doing wonderful, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you so much for joining me today to talk about you know, your processes and the things that you have developed over the years as an independent author and the things that you can share for aspiring authors who are starting out. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Andrew. So let's get into it. Uh, tell me kind of your background as a writer. You know, what one of the one of the biggest questions I ask, one of the main questions I ask is, how did you get started? Oh, I got started all the way back in third grade when my teacher gave me a gold star for creating a story about an ostrich who is questing after a holy egg. And ever since then, it's been nonstop. I have always had this sort of passion to kind of analyze life through story. It's just how I make sense of the world. And I took just kind of a circuitous route through that. I graduated with a BA in screenwriting, and I worked at the fringe edge of the film industry for years. Um, It's a kind of a feast or famine business. And then the writer's strike happened in 2007. 
and put a little bit of a damper on that parade for about 18 months. Um, at that point, I started to transition into indie publishing. I always felt like I had a book in me and I had started a few but never quite finished it. So I used about 2009 to 2010 to really hone in on novel writing. And it's been a uh, wild journey ever since. I've tried to always write something every single day. That's been kind of my journey ever since that. Just doing some research on you, you know, you grew up a lot like me with Crichton and King in your hands, Mm -hmm. um, scary stories to tell in the dark when you were younger. Um, How did those kind of stories and, and those authors shape you as a storyteller? Well, let's see. I could remember events surrounding the first time I read some of these books. So they're dug into my gray matter deep. Um, I remember reading Pet Cemetery on a camping trip when I was about 10 years old, which was probably too young to read that book. But I was just <laughs> absolutely focused on that story. And I remember the details of the camping trip very well as well. So all of the books that I read between like third and maybe eighth or ninth grade, you know, they're just part of my DNA at this point. Um, everything from Piers Anthony's fantasy to uh, Stephen King, you know, I, I took a deep dive into Clive Barker, you know, Crichton, of course, as well. I was in middle school when um, when Jurassic Park came out. And so, of course, I went back and read everything he did. I didn't understand half the words I was reading at the time. But, you know, as a kid, you're, you're clever and you can pick things up in context. And after a while, you, that just becomes how you analyze story and how you kind of see the world around it. So, yeah, that that journey was always just a part of, you know, Stephen King, Michael Crichton, um, Dean Koontz was a huge influence as well. Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, absolutely. Um, the illustrations in that alone are probably 25% of the nightmares I still have. Um, all of those books were absolutely <laughs> foundational. Um, and I didn't turn out to be a psychopath, which is amazing because all my teachers said that I would if I read that kind of stuff. That's so funny. I... I remember being in the sixth grade and I was reading, still reading Goosebumps books. I, I really enjoyed mm-hmm. those books. And yeah. I had a science teacher who kind of stopped me after class one day and she said, if you love those, you're you're going to love this. And she handed me Pet Cemetery. Oh, wonderful teacher. And I, I read that and then I read nothing but Hank the Cow Dog for, for like a good <laughs> six months afterwards. Just nice yeah. stories about dogs on farms. Yeah, not cats coming back and, you know, creepy, <laughs> creepy Zelda coming down to haunt the children and whatnot. I had a different experience, unfortunately. A lot of my teachers were horrified when I brought in books like Stephen King's Cujo or The Dark Tower to do a book report on. I did have some of the supportive teachers, of course, but, you know, you tend to remember the time where the teacher says, no, you can't do a book report on The Dark Tower. We've got to do something nice like To Kill a Mockingbird. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You know, I, uh, a lot like you, I was, I was reading probably above my head, uh, mm-hmm. when I was much younger. And I remember grabbing the lost world by Michael Crichton because I had seen Jurassic park. And this was, I'm a little bit younger than you. So I was mm-hmm. second or third grade at this point. Wow. And like you not really understanding a lot of the words and a lot of the context in the book just knew that I could not wait to get to the part where dinosaurs started ripping people apart. 
Exactly. But we've got to wade through all the little narrative and all the world building and stuff to get the T-Rex chomping up at the velociraptors and the scientists. I recently went back and reread The Lost World. I, I read both Jurassic Park and The Lost World. And it was the first time I had picked that book up in, goodness, you know, close to 25 you know, 25 plus years. Yeah. And there were certain things that I read in the book that I remember as a child going, I don't, I have no idea what a sat phone is. <laughs> yeah. The way they use technology back in the day too, it, it doesn't age as gracefully as maybe like far flung future sci-fi does. There's little times where they're like, oh, we're using a Unix command to do this. And I'm now I'm kind of like, I don't know if you really knew what that was when you wrote that, Michael. But it, <laughs> it works for 99% of the readers. So, so you, you know, you came from a background in, in screenwriting. And then mm-hmm. the, as you mentioned, the, I, I definitely remember the, the screenwriter strike in 2007. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it definitely affected one of my favorite TV shows at the time, which was called Heroes, which is on NBC. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was one of my favorite yeah. shows at the time, too. And and how that that strike kind of nerfed that television show. Um, what was that transition like for you, though, going from screenwriting to novel writing? I mean, it's 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 still storytelling. It but is. But a different medium. Um, and. Exactly. It's a very different medium. A screenplay is a collaborative document that is 100, 110, 125 pages, maybe. Um, And it's an outline. It's a template for something else that other people are going to use. And screenwriting taught me the collaborative nature of that kind of storytelling. It taught me that you're not in control of the story and other people might come in and rewrite you or you might rewrite other people. Um, It's a very committee driven industry in a lot of ways because so much money is on the line, of course, and everyone's trying to optimize the story to be what they feel is going to put the most butts in the seat. And that's totally fine. A novel is much more personal, at least from my perspective, because you spend so much time broadcasting from the inside of your own head in the trenches, trying to get the words to be exactly what you want them to be on the page. And then you go back and you revise it. And you do that with screenplays too. But with screenplays, you know that someone else may come in. A director might bring their own preferred writer in. A producer might have someone that's going to do a polish. An actor might have a certain request because they worked with this writer that helped them write lines that were an iambic pentameter or something. So it's a very different kind of process in the sense that you know where it's going to end up is very different than a novel. Um, When you write a novel, you're ideally writing something that you also want to read. And that can happen with a screenplay too, but there's a lot more chances that someone's going to come along and change that into something that you might not want to read or something that might not be what originally got you to start writing it. I find that with novels in particular, I tend to have to have a lot of momentum to get through that second half, you know, where you get like 50% of the way and you're now starting to have to kind of pay off and wrap up a lot of things. Whereas in a screenplay, you can generally power through that pretty quickly. But a novel, you might have 30, 40,000 words that is in the second half of the novel that becomes payoff that becomes these plot lines that you have to resolve and you know we don't all have like eight seasons of game of thrones to pay these things off so we actually have to kind of do them pretty quickly in a novel 
So I feel that that could be one of the major differences between the two forms. The other, I feel like, is a really well-written screenplay has a sort of zen-like haiku to it almost. It's very, very minimal. And I'm not saying that a, a book doesn't have that, but you're just playing around with more words on the page in general. Screenplays tend to be read really, really quickly by people who are just kind of skimming the description for the dialogue because a lot of the information is going to be conveyed either visually or in audio. Whereas in a novel, you can jump into someone's head, you can get that interiority that we all love, you can pull out and do these macro perspectives that you would probably have to get a really good cinematographer in order to pull off in a movie. But like in a Stephen King book, you know, he can jump around and head hop all around the town, like in Under the Dome or uh, Black House. And that's a little harder to pull off in a screenplay. Screenplays are generally third person present tense. That's pretty much it. Um, whereas, you know, a novel, you've got every single kind of combination of words and grammar structure that we can play around with. I find that really fascinating that you were talking about how collaborative screenwriting and filmmaking in general is and the complete dichotomy of that of the isolationism of novel writing mm -hmm. yeah how absolutely. was that how was that that transition for you then um going from like you said a collaborative effort to something that was solely yourself and your own thoughts and your own imagination it's been wonderful. Um, it's been its own challenge, of course. I've had a decade to work on the process and figure out what I'm good at and what I'm not and write myself down a lot of incorrect hallways and have to kind of write myself back out of those or put it aside for a few months and get a little bit of perspective. Um, yeah, that dichotomy is, is a challenge. Um, I do miss the collaborative nature of screenwriting. When I was doing that, I had a manager and I had two literary agents and and I would send the draft off to my manager. He would come back with some notes saying, you know, hey, have you thought of this? Have you considered that? What about this character right here? I feel we're not really using them as well. And then it would go to the agents who would try to place it with someone and say, oh, you know, there's this actress that's really interested in this role. Um, maybe, maybe we could change it to a female and that would get me going in a new way. Oh, that adds a whole new layer to the story. Maybe I can change the character from a male to a female. Um, whereas with a book, it tends to be a little more, like I said, you're broadcasting from inside your head. You're like this little submarine at the bottom of the ocean and you have to kind of poke your periscope up every now and then to kind of get the lay of the sea around you and figure out where the heck you are. Fortunately, I have a lot of um, beta readers that I really trust with that process. So I send them usually not a final draft, but a near final draft of what I've got. And then I incorporate their feedback and try to triangulate if I went too far off the map, if I did something that didn't work. Um, but that immediate feedback that you tend to get in screenwriting is a little harder to find when you're writing a novel, I think. And also the changes that you tend to make in a novel tend to be based upon a lot of things that have come before them and a lot of things that are going to follow. Whereas with a screenplay, it's a little easier to kind of slip in and out some changes without really destroying a lot of the world building and whatnot, because a lot of that is going to be left up to the director, the director of photography, set design, the costume designers, the actors and actresses, and all the people that work on that collaborative 
project. Whereas with a book, it's just your reader and your words on the page. And hopefully by that point, it makes sense to them. When I was in my intro, um, I mentioned that you do a lot of things right as an indie author. And we'll get into those. But first, let's start with that first novel. What was that process like for you? And what made you decide to pursue indie publishing as opposed to setting off for literary agents? Yeah, so my first novel was not the first novel that I ever wrote. I wrote two novels before I wrote Forsaken, which was the first novel I independently published. And those novels are in a trunk. They will probably see the light of day at some point, but they were very experimental. It was a little literary um, looking back on it now. And I think I was just figuring my way around the process. Um, I call those my desk novels. I've got exactly. a few of those myself. Yep. Yeah. I, I think any writer who's worth their salt hopefully has a few of those. And, you know, you can always mine those for ideas later. I mean, I read that Stephen King wrote Under the Dome back in the 70s um, and just couldn't make it work. And it took, you know, 30 something years for him to do that. So, yeah, I had two books before that that were I don't want to say they were terrible, but they were just an exploration of what I was not terribly good at. And then I wrote Forsaken, which was based upon a screenplay that I had a fair amount of success with a few years before. And this screenplay got a lot of meetings. Um, and it was just, it was one of those screenplays that a lot of people loved it. And it had a semi-dark ending that was a little bit of a tough sell. Um, I don't know if you remember in the mid-2000s, but horror generally was kind of you wanted to end it on an up note. Um, there wasn't things like hereditary or midsummer. There wasn't elevated horror. So that was a little bit of a tough sell. And I went about converting a screenplay into a novel, which I thought would be easy, but it turns out is completely the opposite. You have to forget most of the things that you actually did in the screenplay because they don't necessarily work the same way uh, as they do in a novel. And it's so much more fun to get inside characters' head in a heads in a novel. So what I did was I was living in South Korea with my wife at the time. And we had, well, she's still my wife, but at the time we were living out in the countryside. And I had a lot of time on my hands. I found out that I had nights and evenings free. And I was just surrounded by a lack of distraction, for a better word. And I really dove into it. I committed that every day I was going to write 2,000 words. And within a few months, I had a first draft of a novel. And then a few months after that, I had a second draft. And then it got a little quicker between rewrites. And about six months into the process, I slid it over to my wife, who is a avid horror reader. We literally met through horror books by exchanging them um, with each other. That's how we fell in love. And, and you know, she, her her round of feedback was, hey, this is interesting. This is good. You should give this to some other people. And so that's what I did. I sent it out to a few friends, um, some people who were in the film industry and got their feedback. And at that point, this was about the summer of 2011. Um, Kindle was exploding. Apple had just come out with their iPad about a year before. E-readers were now a thing. And I remember reading about, um, I think her name was Amanda Hawking. She was a indie writer who wrote, I think it was Paranormal Romance. I didn't read a lot of her stuff, but it 
basically removed some of the barriers to entry that I had seen in the film business, which was a lot of people between you and your audience. So one of the things that I did is I, you know, hired an editor. Um, I outsourced the cover design to 99 designs. Um, I had a formatter come in and do that. And at this point, I was, wasn't sure if I was going to go the traditional or the indie way, but I felt kind of in my gut that indie was where the future was going to be. Um, it wasn't that there were not going to be traditional authors. Of course, there's still going to be plenty of them. I have a bookshelf right now full of them that I'm looking at, but it just felt like having the relationship with your readers um, be direct from you to them. They could email me at any time. They could come to my webpage. It felt a little closer and more intimate. And I sort of felt that looking back on my years of working in the film business, that removed that distance between the creator and the people who were ultimately seeing the product, it felt so distant that indie publishing just seemed like a no-brainer at this point. Having that relationship as close as you could to the readers felt like the right thing to do. So I rolled the dice on it and I was uh, very fortunate. You know, my first book, Forsaken, somehow went a little viral back in 2011. And I think it was also the time too, there wasn't a lot of stuff on Amazon at that time. It was the gold rush days of the ebook. I remember around that time, I think Hugh Howey's book, Wool, and then Andy Weir's The Martian. Um, there were just people that were hitting home run after home run. And it felt like this was something that people could do. The door was open and I haven't looked back since. Yeah, I uh, I kind of had a very similar experience much later. Uh, for me, my first novel, the one that I, I, one that I self-published first was called The Treehouse. Oh, yeah. And it was, it was a, a young adult kidnapping thriller more than anything mm -hmm. um but like you said you know the barriers of entry were lowered the democratization of the technology made it mm -hmm. possible where you could write an entire novel publish it online have it available to any reader who wanted mm -hmm. to find it and then you as a creator made majority of the uh, of the money off of that sale you know we're talking about 70 percent royalty rate as yeah, opposed 70 to seventy percent's really hard to beat. That's hard yeah, to beat. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, my first three or four novels were all independently published like that, and I got to tell you, I absolutely loved having that that seventy percent royalty rate on every single ebook sale. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the things that writers really need to think about is whether that seventy percent is worth doing all the other things as well. Is it worth doing the marketing? Is it worth worth outsourcing the editing and the cover design? and being really honest with themselves. So for me, some of the stuff I really enjoy and some of the stuff I don't. It wouldn't be work, of course, if we didn't, if we enjoyed it all, but you know, the social media aspect, the setting up ad accounts, um, advertising, the constant learning about new platforms. Like I'm doing a TikTok challenge in January and I'm sure it's gonna be cringeworthy and terrible, but that's something that as an indie, you have to do, or at least you need to kind of dip your toes in there to kind of explore that area. And as a traditional author, I don't know if you would be as, I don't know if you would need to do that as much. Maybe there might be, you know, a huge marketing machine behind you. Um, but as an indie author, you know, I don't have that luxury. I have to kind of go out and explore that. But that's also part of the charm of it and the fun. I've often called it the punk rockification 
Uh, That's perfect. Oh, I like that. I'm going to steal that. The punk rockification of publishing. Yeah, because we are kind of scruffy. We are kind of at the fringe edges of things. Um, And I think a lot of people don't necessarily take indies seriously. But I was just at a conference where everyone at the stage giving the keynote speech were making seven figures. Um, So indies are out there killing it. Um, In some, some genres, there's just not room for traditional authors. I mean, try to write a paranormal romance story as a traditional author and you will just get knocked out. Traditional authors aren't even touching that genre because the indies have that down you know, lock and key. Same with a lot of thrillers. Um, you know, you look at some of the top thrillers and you'll see someone like Mark Dawson's name out there, you know, who's kind of been a hybrid author now, but, you know, has been an indie for most of his career. A lot of these romance authors, I'm talking about Jen Morris and Melissa Grace, who mm-hmm. are part of this multi-billion dollar romance genre, mm-hmm. are seeing uh, huge audiences because of that, because of that genre. I mean, these are audiences who are hungry for that kind of of storytelling and will read it doesn't matter if it came from a large publishing house or an indie they want to read good stories absolutely and isn't that wonderful that there is no middleman no arbitrator of taste saying between them you know this romance book might not hit this exact demographic that our marketing department figured out 18 months ago is where we should be focused it's just a lot of like you said scruffy punk rock people throwing together whatever they can and testing these waters and pivoting quickly i've always heard of indie being compared to like little speedboats and traditional publishing being compared to those big cruise ships or those destroyers you know the little speedboats can shoot in through the harbor they may not be able to carry as much but they are quick and they can change quickly whereas it takes a little while to move that um and yeah like you said with with romance i mean the conference i was just at 20 books was dominated by romance authors when we had the book signing, you could half the room was romance authors. And they're some of the nicest, most interesting people as well. And they are very quick to adapt because that genre moves fast. Um, the trends in that genre change and what readers want change. And those readers, like you said, they're voracious. They're whale readers. They will go through you know, a book a day and then see whatever the author's got next and buy five more books of theirs. Should have gotten the romance game. Should have. I I find myself on different Facebook groups. Uh, I like to hear what what readers are looking for, and and romance readers will are more than happy to say to an entire group, "I am looking for X kind of story. Mm-hmm. I want I want male uh, male dominant mm-hmm. um, werewolf. You know, just all sure. kinds of different things. And then you've got hundreds of responses saying, oh, you need to check out this author and this author and this book and this series. And as an author and as an indie author, that kind of data is is almost invaluable. You know, when you can find out exactly as you were talking about these barriers being knocked down where an author can see exactly what is on the horizon as far as what readers are looking for. Absolutely. And it's wonderful, too, that you can have that relationship with the readers. And if you're quick enough, if you write fast enough, you can give that reader that book that they're looking for weeks to months later. It's not going to be 18 months later. Um, Some of my favorite traditional authors, you know, they'll put up on Instagram or Facebook that this book is coming out in the first quarter of 2023. And I'm sitting there thinking like 2023. Wow, it's not even 2022 yet. 
um, you're that far ahead, but that idea might change by then. Um, whereas, you know, that romance author might read someone saying that, oh, I'm really interested in a bully romance with a werewolf shifter subplot, you know, set in like a, you know, bucolic town in the English countryside. And an enterprising author who has enough time in their schedule to be able to bang out about three or 4,000 words a day, they can get that to them in two to three months. Um, you know, they can have the cover being designed while they're writing the story and the marketing plan all whipped up and they can hit that person a couple months later and say, oh, here you go. Here's the book that you asked for, which it would take, you know, two years to do in the traditional landscape. So the timeline's definitely changing. I've thought about that a lot too, of, of timelines and releases. And for instance, my my next book, I, I'm signed with a, an independent press now called Blue Handle Publishing. And my next book is not scheduled to come out until uh, fall of 2022. So, I mean, it has a year-long lead-up. But I've thought a lot about independent publishing. And and one thing I thought about most was Taylor Swift, who who put out a surprise album earlier this year with, uh, was it uh, Evermore? And I thought about that from a publishing standpoint as well when you think about having someone's attention immediately and then offering them something to purchase immediately as opposed to having, hey, I've got your attention now, but this product that I want you to buy will not be available for six to eight months. I'm starting to wonder if if that process of releasing surprise books or releasing quick like that is where the, the transition of independent authorship and independent publishing will move toward where it's no longer a large lead up. It's, Hey, I've got this book. It's about this. It's available today, right now, $3, buy it. Yeah. I, I don't see any downside to that. Maybe I've myopic or got glaucoma or whatnot, but I don't see a downside to Taylor Swifting a book every now and then. Um, you know, J.D. Barker is one of my favorite contemporary authors. And if he were to just release a book unannounced and say, this is a new book, it's a thriller about something that happens in a little town in Maine, I would buy it because I love J.D. Barker's work. And I would buy it for that reason alone. I would not pass on it because it wasn't pre-announced and I hadn't seen the cover reveal and I didn't get on their newsletter. Um, and I think a lot of readers tend to be like that as well. There's probably room for all sorts of different versions of that. Um, you know, some people could rapid release a book every month. Um, other people, you know, like me tend to be a little slower um, in having, in releasing and writing their books. I tend to like about six months of lead time um, but I'm even changing with that too. I've got a book that I'm currently working on that my plan is to just release it when it's done, when it's got its beta feedback, covers, formatting, once everything's fine and once the audio production is underway, that's when I'm going to release it. Um, so yeah, I think you could do both. And there's really no downside for trying that these days, especially as an indie author. I had mentioned earlier, and we're going to get into this now, of a lot of things you do right uh, as an independent author. And one of those things is you offer a lead magnet, a free book on your, either on your Instagram, you know, your, your links on Instagram or through your uh -huh. website. Um, how do you see uh, that process of, of offering a free book or free story mm -hmm. transitioning from interested reader into captivated reader? Yeah. So I 
built this based upon Mark Dawson's recommendation, where you're taking strangers, you're trying to turn strangers into potential readers, you're trying to turn potential readers into fans, you're trying to turn fans into friends. And everything that you're doing essentially is trying to funnel them closer toward your email list, your reader magnet. Um, the email list for me is the foundation of being an indie author. You have a direct line to people who are interested and say that, yeah, you know, we'd like to hear from you. So I tend to send one email a month, sometimes two email emails a month if I have something to say or something to announce, but I tend not to waste their time too much. And that lead magnet is invaluable in that. So I give away a book called Grim Horizons. Grim Horizons is about 300 pages of short stories and novellas. There's, I believe, about eight short stories and novellas in there. It's a collection that has everything from dark fantasy to horror to kind of contemporary literary thrillers. Um, it's a good kind of overview of my interests as an author. So my philosophy is that if you read this book and you like this, there's going to be something else in my library that you're also going to like. If you like one of my dark fantasy stories in that, well, I've got a dark fantasy series that I'm going to be releasing at the end of this year. If you like the sci-fi story that I wrote, well, then I've got a techno thriller series called Blindsight that I released a few months ago. If you like horror, well, I've got Forsaken. Um, so there's, it's sort of like a kind of all you can eat buffet of different kind of flavors of genres and whatnot. And I use that to, um, to generate interest. I use that to um, build the relationship with people who tend to be a little skeptical so they might read this book, they might see the book and say, well, I'm not really sure about paying four, five, six dollars for this book. Um, they can get it for free by signing up for my mailing list. They can cancel at any time. They'll still have the book for free. It'll still be on their Kindle. They'll still have access to it. So for me, I just see it as a way to kind of give something first to people, something of value. Um, and if they like it, then there's other opportunities. They can get to the end of the book and there will be links to my other books out there. Um, but everything in my advertising campaigns is generally designed to go straight to that reader magnet and to get that into people's hands for free and from them hopefully to enjoy it. And then at that point, once they've finished it, they might say, hey, you know, there's another book um, by Andrew Van Way that I'm curious about. Um, so I've been enjoying that process so far and it, I feel that it's been pretty successful. I feel that it's been paramount to building an email list, especially these days where everyone is constantly inundated by ads, by um, clickbait, by other little distractions and whatnot. So I've been enjoying them. Um, using that reader magnet to build my email list and to build my relationship with my readers. What is your number one piece of advice for an aspiring author who comes to you and says, how do I get started? How do I do what Andrew Van Way does? Oh man. Um, I would say to have a lot of time and to realize that this is not even, you know, it's not a sprint or a marathon. It's a crawl across a desert. It takes a long time. Every book that you write will probably be better than the previous book that you wrote. So don't expect a home run on your first book. The landscape changes drastically too. So really just have an honest conversation with yourself. Is this a avocation or is this a vocation? 
If it's an avocation, that's completely fine. Um, you're on a different timeline. If it's a vocation, treat it like a job. Treat it like as if you were a plumber, if you were an engineer, anything. Study as much as you can, read widely. Um, but really just sit down and have that honest conversation with yourself. Are you ready to dedicate, you know, five hours a day, five days a week to this? Do you have that time? Um, if not, you might need to change, you know, your direction at that point in your life. Do you have children? Do you have other obligations that are going to dig into your writing time? Um, because I think a lot of people have a very romanticized idea about writers. We just go off to some cabin in the woods and we create stuff and we come back down with our first draft and it wins a Pulitzer or a Man Booker Prize or it becomes, you know, a movie directed by um whoever directs movies that books are directed by. <laughs> but I think that that have a realistic understanding of the challenges of it. I mean, there's tens of millions of books on Amazon. Um, every book that you write is going to get your name out there more, but it probably won't be that first one. And if that first one takes you 10 years, um, as you know, the first one took me quite a while. Just be realistic and set your expectations there. I think a lot of us have a gold rush mentality, and I certainly do at times as well. And we need to be a little more honest with ourselves that this is a long-term investment. Um, but it's an investment that can be wonderful because, you know, it leaves a legacy. These books will earn money after you're gone, ideally. These books will earn money for your children or your grandchildren or whatever estate you leave behind. Um, and that's wonderful. That is invaluable information. Uh, Andrew, what's what's next on the horizon for you? So I'm working on a sequel to Blindsight that's called Refraction. That should be out in the second quarter of 2022. Um, Blindsight is a techno thriller that I describe as like if Red Dragon met the X-Files with a little side of Inception. It's a hunt for a serial killer who can move through walls and kill without leaving a trace. And it all goes back to a government experiment that was shut down at the end of the Cold War. So this is the second book in that series. It's currently a trilogy. There was going to be a third book at the end of the year as well called The Last Shadow. And then I'm looking at doing a horror book between them that I'm just finishing up a second draft with called um, And Bring With You a Heart. And that's going to be a just a straight horror kind of back to hereditary style trauma and scares and fear and stuff like that. And then after that, I have got a dark fantasy series that I'll be rolling out in 2023. Um, so ideally three books this year, maybe a stretch and a fourth book, um, and then another three books in 2023. So anyone interested in your books mm -hmm. and what you are releasing, where can they find you online? They can find me online at andrewvanway.com. That's A-N-D-R-E-W-V-A-N-W-E-Y.com. And then I'm on social media at all the awkward places, Facebook, Instagram. I'm going to be trying TikTok in a couple of days and making some cringy videos and probably regretting that. But you can follow me there and shoot me an email too. I always love hearing from readers. I usually get a couple emails a day and I always try to respond to them within about 24 hours and whatnot. Um, and those help me triangulate my reader expectations too. So if there's something that you are interested in, shoot me a message. 
Um, I'd love to hear from you and hear about what you're reading and writing and what you're excited about. Andrew, thank you so much for the time today. Thank you for all of the invaluable information you have for the aspiring authors who are listening to you and listening to this podcast. I think you put out some some great information today that, that will go a long way to help aspiring and, and prospective authors. Thank you, Andrew. I appreciate it. This has been a lot of fun. And to all aspiring authors, I would just say, just stay in the game. It's not a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's a walk across a desert, but there are little oases along the way. So just keep on, keep on walking across the desert of your own creation. and You'll get there eventually. All right. Thank you so much, Andrew. We'll talk to you again soon. This is the Indie Author Method podcast. Thank you for listening. Please leave five-star reviews, write us a review, Send us, send us your thoughts, you know, let us know uh, what you think of the podcast, who you'd like to see on the podcast in the future. Thank you to our sponsors, Expand Laces and The Subtle Nerd. You can find great nerdy apparel uh, that fits comfortably. I love The Subtle Nerd. Find those t-shirts at thesubtlenerd.com. Again, joined by Andrew Van Way, independent author today. Uh, thank you again. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week as we have more authors who share their tips and their tools for you, the aspiring author at the Indie Author Method podcast. This is Andrew J. Brandt signing off. Thank you so much.